you created and grew a business that was in the care coordination area? Correct. And you must have used a lot of technology as well as humans to do that well. Correct. And how did you keep the mission when people were investing in your company, not losing sight of your mission? Because your mission was to help people, was to decrease costs by taking the rub out of the insurance interaction. Yep. Yeah. So the way that you do that is you, listen, this is, this is not rocket science. It's to play the long game. At the end of the day, whatever you think of Jeff Bezos, he's like, look, we're long-term greedy. Like you don't go for the money in the short term. You go for the money in the long game. And if you play the long game, then it causes you, it forces you to make different decisions. So we played the long game at, at Compass, at the company that we started. And what that meant was we didn't make as much money in the short term, but in the long term, financially, we made out fantastic. So almost every aspect of life, whether it be from your diet to exercise or whatever, short-termism generally is a bad idea and long-termism is generally a good idea. And so if you look at your decisions through that lens, it tends to work out much better. That sounds like the stock market. <laughs> right? The long, the long game is always good. The long game is so good in so, in so many ways. And that's true for our patients too, right? Like, it, it, like in the short term, you probably as pediatricians, you might have teenagers that smoke, but in the short term as a physician, if I have a patient that smokes, that might like hurt my, my scores, right? That might make me look worse as a physician in terms of like my number of hospitalizations uh, because my smoking patient is into the hospital more. Do I fire my patient because he's smoking? No, because you play the long game and over time you say, you know what? I'm going to keep working on him or her and maybe I can get him to stop smoking. But unfortunately, the insurance carriers, they don't see the long game. They don't okay. care yeah. about pediatrics. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and so, so much of being a doctor means going against the grain and doing what's unpopular and doing what, you're, what, what society and other people tell you what not to do. But if you're going to be an effective physician, by definition, you have to be a contrarian. I'm very interested in this idea of how do we bring capital innovation into healthcare when it's not Medicare Advantage patients, because that's another game. Correct. And in one of the things, this is an aggregate of opinions that throughout the podcast. So Dr. Munish and a couple other really, you know, forward thinking physician technologists have come to the idea that the EMR is not going to change because people have spent so much money building these EMRs, but that it cannot continue to be the way it is because it is just absolutely worthless from outcomes worthless from physician satisfaction scores, worthless from the point of view of how nurses interact with it. So the end user is extremely unhappy. So they talk about putting overlays that will communicate with the data, with a database so that it's, so that it is user friendly and actually improves the care that you provide your patient at the point of service when they're in the room with you. So we're no longer slaves to clickety clacking or templates that say nothing, but we're actually being presented with the information necessary to make the best choice for that patient and to push the care coordination. Yeah, those, are called, those are called gaps in care. Right. Yeah. 
money attached to gaps in care for value-based contracts, which is the new darling of the year, the quality incentive programs, and things like that. The problem is, especially with the managed care Medicaid lines of businesses, they have no idea. They keep thinking that the HEDA scores and all, the, all these value-based contracts that are usually adult medicine-centric right. can be adapted and forced into pediatrics. Dr. Espinoza, the vice president of our CIN, says, we keep trying to fit a square peg into a round hole in pediatrics. Right. We need to just make a new peg for pediatrics. Y yes. You know? If that information is not being presented to the decision maker, where uh -huh. the care gaps are. Correct. By the time that the patient is there, so that you can set up a follow-up program that may include AI, may include texting, videos, may include a care coordinator. You know, there's multiple layers depending on what you're trying to achieve. Right. That isn't going to happen because you're going to look at a dashboard three months later and be chasing your behind to uh -huh. try to catch up those patients that are not doing what they need to do to get better. Well, you don't um, want to wait three months. You want to do it almost in real time. Done through dashboards. I mean, we've done it already with the MIFO Inc. dashboard. I, I, yes, but, but is, that, is that part of your office practicum EMR when the patient's in front of you? Is the care gaps in front of you? No, it's a third party that's on top of that, the, the overlay, like as you say. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. That the future is going to be where when you're doing your documentation in with the patient, you notice that there's a care gap and that there's an opportunity to either connect that person to AI engagements through video education or a care coordinator that is going to push for a better outcome without right. having to spend more money on fancy medications yep. or hospital care, right? We don't have that. How would we ask a VC who is socially aware, socially invested to fund such a program. Yeah, it, and it would, it would have to come through, so it's a great question. It would have to come through where the money is, which is in where, who's bearing the risk. And so who's bearing the risk financially is the state Medicaid program. So, so they would find VC, the VC would have to approach the state Medicaid program. Okay, because one of the things I, I thought about this, because again, the long game wins. Yep. So, to me, it would make sense to have a, a socially interested VC fund, which there are some out there, who says, we'll pay, ha you know, sort of what they did with the vaccine, right? Building this overlay will cost $25 million. We'll foot the first $10 million and sign a contract for this product for 10 years. And then we'll take warrants on your company. If you sell, you're profitable. We will get to buy... X amount of your company for a dollar at the time you sell. Now we're, we're both in agreement. We want to be together for 10 years. It may not work, but we want to be together. And we might be able to have the time to actually show that this works. Because if you're just going to dump 25 millions on a business that I have an idea, and then two years later, you're going to sell me for 12 million because I'm not doing what you want me to do, then what have we achieved? Interesting. Your thoughts, Eric? Well, I think to a certain extent, the venture capital and private equity efforts in healthcare, they sort of like have to follow that model because you can't do healthcare investing 
without some sort of larger social good in mind. Caring. Yeah, because it's It's simple. It's very easy to make a lot of money exploiting sick people. Exploiting sick people for money has been around for thousands of years with snake oil, right? I mean, this is not a new concept, right? So by definition, like, you you can't go in the snake oil direction. You can't maximize your income at the expense of exploiting sick people. And so my, my answer to that is, is that every single doctor that is involved in a scheme that financially exploits the sick should refuse to do it. Yeah. yeah. But, but we have plenty of those. What, what, was the, what was the mental health app that was writing Cerebral. Cerebral. Yeah. It was a pill mill on steroids. Hims is a joke. You know, it's niches, erectile dysfunction, and they'll sell for $900 all the Cialis you want for a month. If you go on Rx and you figure out how much it costs to buy Cialis for a month, it's 20 bucks. Great deal. But they're exploiting, they're exploiting the patient. Well, how are they exploiting the patient? They're charging them $900 for something that costs 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think what they do is, the patient has to go, how is the patient going to go to GoodRx? They got to go to you first to get a prescription. For, oh, yeah, so they're going to pay me a hundred bucks. They don't want to talk to you about it. They may feel uneasy. They may this, they may that. So they go to a computer that's no human. They get the prescription. They get the drug. They're done. So that's what that's how they exploit it. Yeah. I don't know. $100? I guess. I don't know. I don't think that's right. I think, you know, what when I... Listen, I am not, I'm not against like physicians providing, here's how you don't exploit people is you do things like you, you tell them like the price up front, right? To the extent that it's knowable, you give them the price up front. Like, I, th- I think that's a pretty basic, this whole idea with like price transparency. I'm in favor of physician unionization. Like I think physicians should unionize because at the end of the day, look, if you're a physician, that works at a hospital system that has refused to be compliant with the law and share prices, like as a physician, you should like protest that. And like, as an individual physician, they'll be like, so you don't like us not, you know, not sharing the pricing information like we should. I don't leave. care. Leave. Yeah. Go somewhere else. You can leave or you can unionize, right? You essentially have the exploitation of labor by management, right? This is essentially what has happened in healthcare. That's why there was a huge movement towards unionization during the Industrial Revolution, because it was an exploitation of labor. The exploitation of for physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals is plainly obvious. So unionization is not the only way, but is a way to say, look, if you're going to do something that's bad for our patients, which is to completely hide the price of what it's going to cost them from something in advance, when the federal law requires you to do so, then that's harming my patients and I'm going to protest that. I agree. Yep. Oh, and you're, when you say, we don't care if you leave Dr. Bravo, we have two nurse practitioners to replace you and they cost us half of what you cost. That's don't. right. And you, Dr. Bravo, have a non-compete so you can't practice within 45 miles a year. Yeah, leave. Go. Yeah. Go wherever you want. You're not going to get even an, you know, a cost of living increase. You, you want to complain? Leave. You're a troublesome physician. We don't want to deal with us. Leave. Leave. Go yep. away. Disruptive physician. You're a disruptive physician. 
you speak out at the meetings against the health system. Leave, go, or we're going to fire you. Yep. I do not mean to be doom and gloom. I'm an eternal optimist. And I also believe that sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. I'm sure Dr. Rogo and you, Dr. Bravo, you've had instances in your life where you're like, why doesn't this just get better? And things actually got worse. And then, and it took it getting worse until a better solution eventually came around the corner. I honestly think that that is what's going to happen. Like it's, it's going to stink. Like honestly, things are going to get worse before they get better. But there is absolutely light at the end of the tunnel here for things to change and for things to get better. And things might have to get worse for like 10 or 15 years. Whoa, it's a long time. They, they, it, it is a long time. Listen, I've already resigned myself to the fact that it's going to be beyond my career, maybe even beyond my life. I mean, the labor issues during the Industrial Revolution happened for 80 years. I mean, from 1850 to 1930, it was going on. So this, this is not going to happen overnight. I mean, this is going to take an incredibly prolonged effort over a prolonged period of time. And that's okay. Like, I'm fully prepared for that. And if I don't see healthcare, quote unquote, fixed during my lifetime, like I'm okay with that. But I'm going to, I'm going to keep pushing the ball down the field because eventually it will get better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. You're genius. You know, when I asked you, what do you think about private equity and physicians? You said something straight out, which I think was just, I, I think it was great. And you said, Private equity is buying highly profitable practices using an aggregated model to improve efficiency and management. This is done at the detriment of younger physicians who are not equity partners at the time of the sale. Correct. Does that, does that summarize this conversation? It does. And so really the message is, is that if you are a non-partner junior physician in a practice, you might be aware of talks with private equity. You might not be aware of talks with private equity, but just know that if and when it happens, that it most likely would be in your best interest to leave. Or to negotiate a contract where if the practice sells to private equity before you're a partner, you get a piece. That's right. And, and they're high, and they're most likely to go to say no to uh, your, your leverage as a, listen, we all need to under physicians to a certain extent, hate taking risks. And so to a certain extent, we as physicians need to be more comfortable with taking risks and like walking away. If you walk every physician I've talked to that has walked away, not a single one of them has regretted it. Every single one of them has said it was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. We, we have people like that all the time on the podcast. I left the big health system. I left the, the federally qualified clinic. I left the, the group that was led by this one person who didn't want to change. And yep. they're making more money and they're happy and they're taking care of the patients like they want to take care of the patients. That's they're right. doing well. So it is absolutely doable. Absolutely doable. You know, on our coaching class today, we had one of our team members present her data today, and she is doing, she's only been in business like 18 months. And her, her net receivable ratio is at 97%. Her days in AR are at 22. She is financially managing that practice for success as a solo practitioner in 18 months. Yep. 
And yeah, but she's in it for the long game. She knows it. She knows. But, you know, she is putting effort into learning, educating herself, watching the financial metrics, making sure her care, patients are taken care of in a compassionate way, yeah. and succeeding, and she's yep. thriving at it. Mm-hmm. And yep. people, if you want to be happy and you're tired of listening to an administrator who doesn't have the best interest of the patient, or our profession, leave, leave. There's plenty of people out there that are going to help you succeed, but leave. Don't buy this that you can only work for a big company. You can do better on your own. Do it. Do it now. Yep. That's the, I mean, that's our long game. Yep. We have to elevate those physicians. And they're coming out of the woodwork. It's amazing how we're finding all these people that are leaving and opening up their own little shops. Yeah, yep. it's not going to be easy. Yeah, you're not going to make a whole lot of money in the first month. It's going to take a couple, a year or two or whatever. But I always tell these young doctors, anything that you succeed in was created by your own hand. If you fail, it was created by your hand also. You know? There's nobody else responsible. The buck stops with you. Yeah. In a hospital, you could fail because of somebody else very easily. Well, and then the one final piece of unsolicited advice for your listeners is don't chase shiny toys. Yeah. Don't buy a fancy car. Do not buy a big house. Yes. Like, doctors are notorious for spending yeah, yeah, yeah. poorly. Do yeah. not. Because then you have golden handcuffs. Yeah. So what gives you the freedom to leave is to not be attracted to shiny toys. Yeah, and yeah, the banks yeah. lo- love lending their houses and cars for doctors because oh, yeah. they yeah. never, never default. And they, you know they're basically putting a noose around your neck. Yeah. You'll never default, but you'll never actually have any wealth. You're yeah, always yeah. going to be slave to paying debt. Yeah, they yeah. always want the young docs. They always want to get the big, big house right out of residency and so forth. Yeah. I remember when I bought my house in '98. We bought our house. We weren't making a ton of money. And then my father gave the advice to us, and he said, I thought it was a little morbid. He said, listen, you buy a house that if one of you drop dead, the other one can continue to pay. <laughs> like, whoa, but we're doctors. There's two doctors. Double income, no kids, you know? No, don't do that. We're still in that house. It was, it was a nice house. Yeah. It is a nice house, but, yeah. you know, it's good. Yeah. Don't Eric. chase Never catch it. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any parting thoughts before we let you go? No, you gentlemen have been fantastic. Thank you for your service to the pediatric community and to all physicians and to patients. So thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, we thank you. Thank you, Eric. It's always great to have you on the show and we hope you come back soon and we'll talk about Medicaid financing and pediatrics or the lack thereof. We'll have an idea of a topic and you'll talk. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.